Helen, you're not going to buy this, this monstrosity? Of course I am. As a matter of fact, I think I'm going to give it to my sister as a birthday present. You think she'll like it? <laughs> oh, I think she'll understand it. <laughs> it's going to make her laugh. Well, that's the point. At our age, things aren't as important as fun. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews for 25 years. You can check out all of my written work at my website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you happen to be there, I do encourage you to click the link to my other podcast called To the 90s and Beyond, where I look at films of the 1990s, as well as movies that were influenced by the 80s and 90s that are more recent than that. You can find the details to that at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the fourth and final of the Amityville films I'm going to be covering on this podcast. If I cover any more Amityville films, it'll be at some point in the future on my 90s podcast, because this franchise did continue on into the 1990s and today I'm going to be looking at it's actually a film that was made for television in this case called at least in one iteration Amityville Horror colon The Evil Escapes came out in 1989 you might also see this referred to as Amityville 4 The Evil Escapes or Amityville The Evil Escapes but generally speaking as long as you call it The Evil Escapes which is what I'll do from here on out That is the film I'm talking about. This is not rated because it was made for television, but I probably would rate it maybe a mild PG-13. It does have violence and disturbing images in it. The runtime is an hour and 35 minutes, if you watch it without the commercials anyway. Patty Duke, Jane Wyatt, Frederick Lane, Jerry Betzler, Lou Hancock, Brandy Gold, Aaron Eisenberg, and Norman Lloyd appear in the film. The director is Sander Stern, who also writes the screenplay. Now, the origin of The Evil Escapes, I guess we have to start with the author of the book upon which this film is inspired. The book is written by John G. Jones, who has written a lot of Amityville books. In fact, he actually started out in show business. He used to be a guitarist and a vocalist back in Australia for this rock band in the mid-1960s called The Missing Links. He came to the United States sometime later in the hope that he was going to go further in his music career. But his plans changed. In 1980, he met George and Kathleen Lutz at this cocktail party that was hosted by mutual friends. The Lutzes, if you haven't listened to my previous episodes on this, the infamous residents of the Amityville home who purported having chilling experiences with the paranormal. It eventually inspired the best-selling book and the movie of the late 1970s called The Amityville Horror, Several months after their meeting, the Lutzes implored John G. Jones to write a follow-up to Jay Anson's The Amityville Horror. This would be about the Lutz experiences after leaving the Amityville home. So they entered into an agreement. Book and film rights were going to be left with John G. Jones, as well as Paul Commation, to shop around to try to tell the Lutz story. The Lutzes were going to get some cut of the advances and hopefully some more monetary gain in the future. It resulted ultimately in the 1981 book that would be called The Amityville Horror 2. It became another bestseller. 
for this Amityville story. Now, since then, Jones continued writing a number of Amityville sequels, including admittedly fictional stories as he continued on. Those included, eventually, 1988's Amityville, The Evil Escapes. Now, the Lutz family, they left their Amityville home. They had only been there about 28 days. They vowed never to return after their experiences there. After they had left, they had some intermediaries auction off their belongings sometime later. According to the Lutzes, despite no longer residing in Amityville, there were some sort of evil entities that followed them to their new home in California. And in addition to that, some who came into the possession of their auctioned items also reported experiencing strange and eerie occurrences in their own homes. So inspired by this, these latter anecdotes were put into the writing of Amityville, The Evil Escapes, which was an anthology of six short stories meant to shock and scare the people who are naturally attracted to the Amityville story. Now, these fictional stories involve other people, not necessarily the Lutzes, who buy items from the Amityville home. They begin to experience supernatural events that are caused by the evil that has somehow seeped in or escaped into these items. And those items include such things as a power drill, a motorcycle, a stuffed toy dog, and a painting. Now, around the time of the book's publication, a man named Steve White, Steve White, he once ran the TV movie division for NBC for many years, and then he ran New World Pictures starting in 1986 before he ventured forth to run his own production company, Steve White Productions, which later became sometime in the 1990s Steve White Entertainment. For one of Steve White's first projects, he became interested in adapting the John G. Jones book, The Evil Escapes, into perhaps one or maybe more movies. To try to get the ball rolling, White called a man named Sander Stern, who had worked for a long time as a, a television writer. He'd also done a movie at NBC under White in 1985 called John and Yoko, A Love Story. So they had a previous working relationship. More importantly, though, Sander Stern happened to have also written the original screenplay to 1979's The Amityville Horror. So White asked to see if Stern might be interested in making one of these six stories contained, or maybe more, into a television film. Stern took a look at the book. He read it. He said he was not really keen on the specific stories that are in the book, but he thought they might be able to still make a film using this idea of evil transferring into the objects within a demonically possessed house, you know, tied to Amityville somehow. Other people have used the Amityville name. They might as well. You know, maybe something electric specifically where the evil could travel through the power cable into the object and then come back out when it's plugged in at another location so it could take over the next house. Now, White felt that even if the story that Sander Stern wanted to make was not specifically contained in the book, he really wanted the title. The title was going to sell it. So White bought the rights up to the book for a fee as well as giving a co-producer credit to its author, John G. Jones. White sold the package to his old company, NBC, as a made-for-television movie that they would show during their May Sweeps run in 1989. Now, in Sandor's completed screenplay, a crack team of Catholic priests comes in to the Amityville home to exercise the demonic presence within the possessed house. This film seems to ignore the prior Amityville sequels, because if you watched Amityville 3D, you know the house was destroyed at the end of that film. 
Now, cornered by all of these priests and their exorcism techniques, the demon finds refuge by traveling through this power cable into this hideous-looking floor lamp. We actually see the evil traveling like through a moving lump in the cable. It's almost cartoonish in that way. Uh, Sensing the evil is gone from the home, the contents of whatever is left behind in the house are subsequently put up at a yard sale. And that's where we find a frolicsome older woman spying this hideous lamp for $100. A steal, she says, because she's going to send it to her sister in California as a great gag gift. Now, that sister is Alice Leacock. Alice lives in a giant Victorian house overlooking the Pacific Ocean. That's in this fictional Northern California town of Dancot. Now, Alice is a bitter, fuddy-duddy. She's very set in her ways at this point in her life. She's unhappy now to have to take in her newly widowed daughter, Nancy Evans, and her three grandchildren until they can get back on their feet. Now, Alice, while her daughter and her grandchildren are moving in, she receives the lamp, and after they open it up, she places it prominently in her home, despite her household cat and her parrot reacting with great alarm as to its presence for reasons that they basically ignore. Not long afterwards, strange occurrences, of course, erupt. The evil gets unleashed throughout the house. The malevolent spirit especially targets and influences the youngest of the grandchildren by convincing her that it is her dead father. Meanwhile, one of the priests concludes that the evil may actually have transferred into one or more of the house's yard sale items, and he starts to sleuth, eventually leading to trying to warn the family that they are in possession of a powerful demonic presence that surely may destroy them all. Now, initial advertised plot descriptions sent out for publicity for Amityville The Evil Escapes listed the mother, Nancy, as the one who would be possessed. The grandmother would come to her rescue. Now, either the early information was wrong or Stern revised the story prior to filming because the end product actually has the youngest daughter being the one who the spirit seeks to seduce or possess. Stern felt that the demon would likely target the weakest person for its possession, so naturally the youngest of the daughters should be that one. The Amityville locale, well, that really only takes place in the first few minutes of the film. The rest of it takes place in Grandmother's house, mostly. The Evil Escape also marks the first Amityville entry so far not to film at the Toms River, New Jersey location. They found a relatively similar home in the town of Wilmington in Los Angeles County, California. Stern's wife, Candy, happened to be the production designer for this film, as well as quite a few other of his television productions. She put a facade on this house in Los Angeles County to try to resemble the home in Amityville, Long Island, New York, although with its old quarter moon window still intact. One of the real-life Amityville house's owners had changed its appearance and street address to discourage intruders and unwanted visitors, so the real Amityville home really doesn't resemble the Amityville home, at least in those very infamous windows. Now, as I mentioned, most of the rest of The Evil Escapes takes place at the grandmother's Victorian mansion in California. Now, they couldn't find a house on a bluff overlooking the ocean as was needed for the script. But the location manager did find a house, the J.M. Sharp House, near Santa Paula in Ventura County, California, that happened to be kind of on a small elevation. So you really wouldn't, if you're looking at it, see anything around it or beyond it. So that would allow them to make alternate exteriors with some clever editing. Now, one snag, though, the elderly woman who owned the house at that time 
would not let this production film on her property. And that was because a few years prior, another film crew had come in to do a production and they trampled her beloved roses that she lovingly cultivated around her home, despite the producer promising they were going to be extra careful. Coincidentally, the producer of that film was Barry Bernardi, who happened to also be producing The Evil Escapes. Candy Stern, she stepped in, Sanders' wife, stepped in as a production designer. She assured the woman she personally was going to take care that her roses were not trampled on at all, and eventually she convinced the woman and they got the approval. However, Sandor told Bernardi he should under no circumstances show his face on the premises or he was going to face the lady's wrath. Because they could only get approval to shoot the exterior of the house, the interiors were done at a different location, the Woodbury Story House in Altadena, also in California. Now for the back of the house, which would be shown overlooking the bluffs, well, they found a trailer park near the ocean around Paradise Cove Living in Malibu, also in California. They built an upright flat that would look like the back of a house overlooking the ocean from the bluffs. Now for the main actors... Stern worked with the casting director very closely. They wanted to come up with actors to pursue for each respective part. They really had little trouble casting the film. Most of the actors were people Stern knew who did television regularly. Patty Duke, Jane Wyatt, Norman Lloyd, they all fit the mold of their respective characters. These were names that came to mind when they were thinking about who could play those roles. All were a little bit too established as actors to really ask them to come in and read for the roles. So they just took a chance and made the offer, and Stern was very happy that these actors agreed to sign on despite undergoing no auditions. Now, Patty Duke, in particular, lent a professional air to the production. She was very easy to work with, and she made sure that the shoot was enjoyable for everyone as the mother in this film. Jane Wyatt, as the grandmother, she was known primarily for playing Margaret Anderson, who was the mother on the hit show from the 1950s called Father Knows Best. Now, although The Amityville Horror was a wildly popular best-selling book, as well as a popular film in the late 1970s, Jane Wyatt had never actually heard of The Amityville property or any of its background before. She initially thought the film, when she was being offered it, was going to be about the Civil War because she was confusing Amityville with Andersonville, a.k.a. Camp Sumter, the notoriously deplorable Confederate prison that housed tens of thousands of Union soldiers toward the end of the Civil War. Unlike Alice Leacock, Jane Wyatt was a believer in ghosts because, at least for one thing, a personal friend of hers, who happened to be a CEO of a major insurance company, he talked about having a poltergeist in his home, and he would often relate to her how his furniture was moving around or how he could hear knocking noises at different times. He lived with it because the activity, he felt, was benign. Wyatt found the part of the grandmother very fun to play, primarily because this was a persona that was very different from the, the loving and welcoming Margaret Anderson character she was most known for, so she was able to branch out as an actor. And for the older priest, Father Manfred, Sanders Stern was a great admirer of Norman Lloyd. He did a lot of work over the years that he liked. He always wanted to work with him. Lloyd, during this period, was appearing on television as Dr. Daniel Auschlander on TV's St. Elsewhere. And that role on St. Elsewhere actually changed the types of other roles that he was being offered at the time. He was almost always cast as a heavy in prior films in his career, but now he was getting mostly good guys roles, as evidenced here by him representing a, a man of the cloth who is 
seeking to thwart evil wherever he can find it. Jerry Betzler, she plays the older of the three grandchildren, Amanda Betzler. For horror fans today, you might know her under her pseudonym of Zoe Trilling. She kind of has built a, a cult following over the years for her appearances in horror chillers in the 1980s and 1990s. She eventually left acting in 1997. She pursued a career in dance. It didn't pan out for a long time, so she currently works as a an HR director for a mortgage lending company branch in Los Angeles. Uh, playing Brian, the middle grandchild, is Aaron Eisenberg. Eisenberg probably will be known to diehard Star Trek fans. He later played the Ferengi character Nog on seven seasons of the TV show Deep Space Nine. For the youngest of the three grandchildren, Brandy Gold, she happens to be the younger sister of actress Tracy Gold, who you might know as Carol Seaver on the TV show Growing Pains back in the day. And she also was the younger sister of Missy Gold, who played Katie Gatling on the TV show Benson. Now, Brandy also appeared as the young version of Elizabeth, the star child in the TV miniseries V, The Final Battle, which I covered on an earlier episode. The Evil Escapes marks Brandy Gold's last credited acting role. Gold essentially quit acting at the age of 12 and then followed in her father's footsteps down the road by becoming a talent agent. The Evil Escapes, with its characters, seems to make this deliberate connection between the three generations of women in the family as needing to find a way to bond to overcome their dilemma. They're not really getting along. They have to find a way to get it together, ultimately to thwart the evil presence in the house. Meanwhile, the men are relegated as ineffectual. From the deceased and absent husband, you have the skittish son, the overwhelmed priests, and a couple of the victimized smaller characters, like the plumber and the helpful boy whose hand gets mangled by shoving it into a garbage disposal in one of the more popular scenes. By the way, that actor was portrayed by Sander Stern's son, Jamie. His father told him he wanted him to stick his hand in the garbage disposal in a very, very painful scene to watch. Now, video releases have added a few extra shots of blood and gore that were there, presumably to spice up the international theatrical showings for this film, most notably the scene where the boy gets his hand sliced and diced in the garbage disposal. Now, Sander Stern claims he does not remember shooting that much blood, or any blood, really, in the garbage disposal scene. He suggests somebody came in afterward, perhaps, and did it. Although, you would think, considering his son was involved, he would remember shooting his hand getting slashed and blood splattering all over his face. But anyway, he claims he doesn't remember. So continuing the nepotism, though, not only of having his wife involved in the production design, as well as his son as one of the small actors, Stern also hired his other son, Mark, to assist his wife in production design as the art director and another one of his sons, Sean, to assist in the editing during post-production. Special effects in this film, they're minimal. They're very low-tech for what you might expect from an Amityville film. The lamp, it doesn't do a lot more here than glow. One occasion we see a demonic face superimposed on its glass globe, but other scares are pretty mild. There are a few gruesome events, the melting phones, the dead parrot in a toaster oven, that hand mangled into the garbage disposal that stands out, body parts and bile that spew from a sewer pipe into the face of a plumber. It's kind of kind of gross, I guess, for television anyway. There's a sequence where Brian, the, the middle grandchild, has a chainsaw that starts on its own and then he, he can't control where it's going. And that represents one of the film's more memorable scenes. Although that likely is remembered mostly because it's executed in a very silly fashion. If you see this film, it's hard to forget that particular scene. 
I think one of the common observations among people who watch this film, especially for the first time, is that Amityville, The Evil Escapes, the lighting in this film is unusually bright and cheery for a demonic possession horror film. Now, Tom Richmond, he was the credited cinematographer, but he had no prior experience with the much faster tempo, the speed of doing a TV film shoot. So Richmond was told early on by Sander Stern that Stern was going to work very closely with Michael Lund, his camera operator, on all of the shot placements and movements to keep things running smoothly. And that relegated Richmond to essentially being much more of a lighting director than a cinematographer. And Richmond knew that he had two main stars who were older actresses who he felt would want to be shot in soft lighting so they came off looking good. And soft lighting did not work well with the moody look, so he filmed it very brightly. Now, usually under such circumstances, if you're going to film it in soft lighting and it's a more moody film, the production designer would be the one to create a darker environment within that light. But in this case, the house interiors, as well as the wardrobe, were all very brightly done. It was a brightly decorated film. Everybody was wearing bright colors. So it looked much more like a, a cheery film, which some people actually watch this as if it is meant to be kind of a comedy in its own way. And I suppose, I guess you could kind of take it that way. It is very funny on a certain level. Now, the last shot of the film, and this will be a spoiler to those of you who haven't seen it, so you can skip ahead about a minute if you haven't. Sanders Stern was hoping that he was going to be offered a sequel if they made it. So he put in a shot at the very end of the film, the house's cat at the beach, the lamp has been tossed out, the evil makes a transfer into the body of the cat. Now, this was not to be. Amityville, The Evil Escapes, unfortunately, finished a relatively low 54th in the Nielsen ratings for the week of its initial release. It barely beat out a health-related ABC news special called The National Cholesterol. That actually shows you just how much people were ignoring this film at the time. It was crushed by competition that included new episodes of Dallas and Falcon Crest on CBS, and it even failed to attract the ratings of reruns on ABC for Mr. Belvedere and Just a Ten of Us. So essentially, Sander Stern's run that he had wanted to continue on would end here. Now, the franchise obviously did continue on after this, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But The Evil Escapes failed to make a connection at the time, and it really has failed to make a big connection to most fans, at least of the early Amityville works. However, there is a small contingent among those people who watch films. Ironically, they love this kind of horror, the sillier, the better. You can really have a good time kind of making fun of or having fun with, depending on your point of view, a movie like Amityville, The Evil Escapes, because at no point really do you ever take it very seriously. And its execution is so funny in its own way. I don't think intentionally necessarily, but I don't think Sender Stern was really trying to deliver anything more than an entertaining movie for television. So taking it for what it is, it's kind of an entertaining movie to observe, at least on that ironic level. So for that, I will give this film two stars out of four. Two stars on my scale means that it's lacking something vital that would keep it from being a movie that I would recommend to most people. And that which it's lacking, obviously, is going to be. It's not very scary. It's a really, really stupid premise for a film. The story is not really that exciting to relate. And yet, in its defense, it's one of those movies that you love to talk about <laughs> at work. You say, I watched this crazy movie last night about a demonically possessed lamp, and it's great to talk about. 
It's extremely absurd. It's kind of a precursor to another film that's kind of related somewhat to the Amityville series, the Conjuring series, as well as Annabelle. You know, you have your doll, an inanimate object that is somehow possessed by a, a demonic presence. It doesn't move. It doesn't do anything. It just looks creepy. But yet, all these crazy things are happening around it. So if you like those Annabelle movies, I, I guess you could look at this as kind of a, a very primitive version of that particular story. Maybe less scary because it's made for television. But it's not enough for me to recommend it to a vast majority of people. And that's why I can only give it generously, probably, for most people, two stars out of four. Some people might rate it below that. Two stars out of four is what I give. Amityville, The Evil Escapes. Now, this was retitled when it came out on home video to Amityville 4, The Evil Escapes, as well as the Amityville Horror, The Evil Escapes Part 4. So you might see it under different names. As long as you concentrate on The Evil Escapes, it you will know that this is the movie. Now, John G. Jones did eventually write a book just the next year. It was called Amityville, The Horror Returns which when published, it contained the statement on the book, soon to be an NBC movie. So they did have an idea at the time that they were making The Evil Escapes that this was going to be the franchise that Sander Stern wanted it to be on television. But that movie was canceled. It was never made. The low ratings for The Evil Escapes probably killed it. Subsequent entries, though, did continue on going straight to video over the next few years. Now, those subsequent entries in the series were produced still by Steve White, and they were variations of this premise involving inanimate objects. One film features a clock, the next one the mirror, and then the Amityville dollhouse. So those continued on through the 90s, and I will talk about that on To the 90s and Beyond at some point in the future. Probably not just yet. I'm Amityville'd out. Not that I despise Amityville necessarily, but... It's time to move on. And now in 2011, Hannibal Classics and executive producer Patricia Eberly, they plan to release something called Amityville The Legacy 3D in 2012, and that would be based on elements of the John G. Jones book Amityville The Evil Escape. And it was going to be scripted by Steve B. Harris and Andrew Helm, with Harris producing along with Rhonda Del Castro and Paul Mason. Somehow that just never quite came to be either. So there's still six stories that you could adapt from the John G. Jones book. I guess there's no shortage of Amityville stories that are being adapted at some point or another into film. So it just continues on and on and on. If you have your own thoughts on Amityville, whether this film or any of the prior films in the series, or if you just want to tell me that you would like me to review sooner rather than later, those Amityville sequels that came out in the 90s and beyond, then you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, and Instagram are there. But email, I do think, is the best way that you can get in touch with me and let me know what you think about the show and where you'd like it to go. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, well, I'm going to go back a year from the release of Amityville, The Evil Escapes, and look at another movie featuring something electrical that moves from house to house, just like this one, somewhat, and terrorizes the residents within. It is a film called Pulse, a horror sci-fi mix that came out in 1988, starring Cliff DeYoung and Roxanne Hart, among others. Not to be confused with, like, about three or four other prominent films that are more popular than this called Pulse. But if you haven't seen it, check it out from 1988, Pulse. And that will be what I cover on the next episode of Around the World in 80s Movies. 
Until then, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world. Just ahead of that evil demonic presence, I hope, in 80s movies. Oh, man, it's, we got to go there, man. I'm serious. We got to. It's the house on the hill. 